Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod 63. Well, first of all, I ought to say apologies for those of you who've been listening out for God Pods and haven't heard one for a little while. It's, um, I don't know when you're listening to this, but uh, it's now uh, September 2011, and uh, we've been on holiday. So that's why we haven't been uh, God Podding for the last couple of months. So It's been a real hardship, obviously, to go on holiday and not God Pod, but um, yeah. we did it. And we could do this. We could do it at the same time, couldn't we? God Pod on holiday would be a very good idea. <laughs> But, um, well, we're back again now, and uh, this is GodPod 63. And today we have uh, Jane. Yes, me. Who's uh, always here, which is wonderful. And um, we don't have Mike today. Mike is on holiday himself still, sunning himself on a beach in North Wales, I think. And uh, But we do have uh, two people who have come on occasional GodPods in the past. Both of them are staff members at St. Paul's Theological Centre at St. Miletus College. Uh, one is Stephen Backhouse. Hello. Nice to be here. Stephen is, um, well, very nice to see you, Stephen. Yep. <laughs> Good. And Good. hear you, more, more particularly. Exactly. Well, we can see you. but uh, And uh, Chris Tilling. Hello. Chris is, of course, our tutor in New Testament. And, um, and Stephen teaches social and political theology with us. So uh, we've got a couple of, we've got various questions that Let's crack on. people have um, emailed in from all over the place. And without any further ado, unless there's anyone else, anyone else to say. We're going to pitch into our first question, which is um, one that came from um, from India, from Libin Thomas, from Kerala in India. And uh, it was a really interesting question, which um, is along these lines. quite a long email, but I'll try and summarize it. Uh, it says this, does God love us all equally? If that is the case, why didn't he create us equally? Is it then the case that he loves one less than the other or that he loves one more than the other? You look at a person, the things that define him, the place he's born in, whether a developed or a developing country, the family he's born in to a rich one or a poor one or an orphan, the circumstances that shape their life, suffering from abuse, the loss of a parent, a criminal encounter, getting into bad company, losing a close one to cancer, the direction the life flows, whether you get a good job or grab the right opportunity or so on. And it, uh, all these things show that neither are we born equal nor is our life equal. So there's this basic fact of inequality within the world, and uh, it didn't take a lot to see that's the case across the world, as uh, uh, Libin uh, outlines in his email. So the question is, does that therefore mean that God likes some people more than others, is favourable to, to some more than others, or how do we understand this basic inequality in the light of the understanding that God loves all people equally? So that's the question. Very good question. So does anybody want to start with an answer? I've, I've, I've been pondering a related question, you see, this, this summer, and I think it's, it's relevant. I, I think he's, he's tying here a little bit too closely our worth uh, in what we do and in how successful we are with, with God's love. And the verse that's been speaking to me very much over the summer is a, a passage in Paul's letters from, from Romans, Romans chapter 5, where Paul says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I, th I think there we see 
the mystery of the gospel is that God doesn't love what is beautiful. God loves what is actually set against him. God chooses to love sinners, the ungodly, as he puts it in Romans 5, God's enemies. And so I think that a part of the response to that question is to see God's love isn't based on our worth, on how successful we are, what we do, but is rather simply God's sheer generosity. That's at least how I would answer it. What do you think? I think it's worth remembering that it's one of the very remarkable things introduced into um, human culture by the Jewish Christian faith is that God does love everybody equally. Mm. Um, and actually other cultures and traditions have not taken that for granted, have assumed mm. that you know, if you're poor or you're disabled or you're um, in other ways oppressed, then it's your own fault in some way. And... Um, we want to say very firmly that that does not reflect God's understanding of of our worth, as you say, Chris, that God absolutely does love all people equally. And that therefore there is there has to be an element of um, anger in in Christians against a world that where where inequality is so taken for granted still. Mm -hmm. So if we say God loves all people equally, then we have to to fight against a system that um, makes people less and less equal, don't we? Yeah, it's a, well, sorry, Greg. It's a, it is an interesting point, isn't it, that in some ways the very exclusiveness of Christianity becomes quite inclusive when it comes to humanity. I mean, the, the fact that we we believe there is one God, there aren't many gods, mm. we're not polytheists, we take a very different particular view on that, that there is one God who is the author and creator of us all. In one sense, you, you know, you think that could be quite an exclusive sort of doctrine that would somehow exclude people. And sometimes that, the point has been made that, you know, that monotheism is a very um, kind of aggressive, exclusive thing because it excludes others who aren't monotheists. But actually, when you think of it, the idea that, you know, that we all come from one source, one person, one personal God, actually is the basis for our belief that, that all people are genuinely equal, no matter what race, background, um, gender they come from everyone has a basic equality because their origins and in a sense the love that they they receive is not based as chris was saying on anything within themselves um it's it, it, it's based in god's character and i think that's a really important mm. point that 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 you know that god's love for us is not founded in or linked to or based in any particular quality that we may mm have a particular ability we may we may have it's actually entirely located within god's own will and desire but Stephen, you yeah kind of chip in yeah i i like that talking about not it's not based on your ability I, i've been doing some well as, as listeners might remember from other god pods i'm i like kierkegaard the danish philosopher and i was doing some reading in him recently like is a slight understatement there <laughs> yes I, I love kierkegaard <laughs> Uh, is there anyone who can spell him? I was doing some reading on <laughs> Kierkegaard uh, recently, and he uh, was was reflecting on. Uh, it's interesting that Chris mentioned Paul because he's reflecting on First um, Corinthians nine, uh, and this is where Paul is. He's talking about he, he's beating his body and making it a slave, so he's running for the prize. And he says in uh, nine verse twenty four, "Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize." Now, if you were members of, of uh, non-Christian 
religion or an anti-Christian society, then you might have this idea that there's only one winner and everybody else is a loser. But mm -hmm. Kierkegaard says, this. what's interesting about this is everyone can be that one who wins the race mm -hmm. in Christianity because we're all individuals before God. Because Kierkegaard was really interested in, he's very keen to make sure that you didn't think that your worth was based on what social class you were part of or what group you were part of. And he says, when we all run, only one wins the race, but we can all be that one because the races that we're running is to God. Mm, mm. Uh, and it, and it, and within Christianity, there isn't a sense that ev that there are some losers and some winners. Mm. Everyone mm. could be a winner of the race. Yeah. So it looks like an exclusive, like you were saying, Graham, looks like an exclusive doctrine where, where there's some people who are being left behind on the wayside. But really, it's more about sort of standing before sort of being an individual before God and but not I, relying on your society around you. But that ha it has to be important to say with that and that that doesn't mean that we can all sit back and say it's fine that some people are suffering and some people are right. poor mm. because God loves us all equally. Mm. There, I mean, it, there is there are consequences for saying God loves yeah. us all equally. Well, in so, the way much we of the, so many of the problems in, in that letter yeah. that, he, that the man mentioned was all a result of human sin. Of how we choose to... Yeah. Divide the world up, yeah. and Christianity doesn't baptize that the social order. It doesn't say, "Oh, well, that's the way God intended it." You know. So you're stuck in that social order. Mm. It actually draws a line between how humans operate and how God sees us. Yeah, yeah. Which again is another part of the answer, isn't it? That you know, one part of the answer is to reaffirm what well, I guess we've said already, which is that God does. There is a sort of fundamental Christian insight that God does love each person equally. There's no favoritism in God's view. But on the other hand, uh, you know, there is this sense that we live in a deeply unequal world. But what is is not the same as just because something is a certain way. That isn't be that isn't because God wanted it to be that way. Mm. This is where I'm sure if Mike was here, he would be saying something about the fall, um, which is that, you know, that, that, that says that the doctrine of the fall allows us to say that that what we see in the world is not necessarily the way God intended it to be. And we have this quite difficult theological task as Christians to discern what is created and what is fallen. You know, what out of what we observe in the world is part of creation and therefore good and to be celebrated, and what is fallen and broken and and distorted. And it's not always easy to tell the difference between those things sometimes. Sometimes it is, and some of the examples that we have here are clearly things that are part of the fallen nature of the world, the brokenness of it, rather than its intended mm. goodness. And we as Christians who know God's love for all and have seen it demonstrated in Jesus, therefore have a very particular responsibility for trying to be more like God. I mean, mm. Jesus tells Christians to love their enemies. We, ha we are actually the vanguard of attempting to behave as much like God as we can in relation to the world that we're in, which is yeah, also right. not easy. Yeah. Mm. Um, That's I never thought of that way. Loving enemies is part of being equal, seeing everybody as equal. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The right. God makes rain to fall on the just exactly. and the unjust. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I guess the, um, I mean, the, the, the other part of this, I suppose, is that, I mean, it, what it does highlight, I suppose, is the, I mean, it's a very sort of deeply entangled nature of, of sin. I mean, it's one of the mm. images that Augustine often has about sin and evil. It's, he uses the image of a knot. It's like a sort of deeply knotted rope. That is, the, the harder you pull it, the sort of tighter it gets. And it's a sort of knotted knottedness. It's all kind of tangled up and very difficult to disentangle. 
And I suppose the, the, the fact of inequality that right from, from birth we're born into different cultures, different backgrounds. Um, you know, we're not, we're not in a sense, you know, in one sense we're born with a clean slate, but in another sense we're, we're not in that we are born into families that have a history, that have a background, that have a culture. We're born into poverty or riches. We're born into families that are either healthy and strong or, or, or destructive and dysfunctional and abusive. And um, it, 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 it's such a tangled, tangled thing. But I suppose on the one hand, we're saying that that isn't the way God made the world. That's what we have made of the world, what the world has become through the centuries of fallenness and, and, and brokenness. Um, and I suppose secondly, we're also saying that that um, that actually that's not the final word about us. The final word about yeah. us is that we are still yeah. loved, and there is the possibility of redemption and and yeah. uh, and, and, and freedom from those things. Which I think is the other yeah. thing to say about this: that 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 grace tells us not only that we are loved by God, and that the inequalities of this world are. Um, part of its brokenness, not part of its createdness. They're not part of God's will. And it gives us, as Jane was saying earlier on, something of a mandate to struggle mm-hmm. against that in prayer and in social justice and in action and so on. But I think hanging on to the point that Chris made right at the beginning about how God values God's values and ours are not the same, I think that, again, is also very important. We, um, we tend to assume um, a way of working out equality, Mm. Um, mm. that may not be what God is interested in at all. I mean, we've all met people who had nothing um, mm. and were clearly saints of God in a way mm. that is absolutely humbling to those of us who've had all the possible opportunities in the world. And we, I tend to think that, you know, some of the, the widows that I met in Burundi who can barely hold their lives together will be the ones who take my yeah. hand when I come to meet God and plead for me. Um, yeah, and I think you know right. that's that's also worth remembering, isn't it? Yeah. God's value system and ours is very different. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? The, the kind of interplay between those two things. Because yeah. uh, I often think it's this, in some ways, is an illustration of Augustine's doctrine of original sin, or perhaps even St Paul's doctrine of original sin, if <laughs> that's the way it is. Um, but the idea that you know, I guess the the doctrine of original sin is saying that we, you know we're not all born with an entirely clean slate. We're actually born. In, into a complex net of uh, of relationships yep. which affect us without mm. our even having any say in it. Mm. And the fact that we're born into families that have all kinds of different backgrounds and that begin affecting us right from the very day of our birth is, I think, a way of understanding mm-hmm. uh, original sin yep. that, that says that, you know, we, there's a, that sin is something that, yes, we are responsible for because we, we act on particular impulses and we do destructive things and we hurt each other. But there's another aspect of sin that, in a sense, we're we're caught in. Yes, it's not entirely our responsibility. We're we're, we're caught in it, in this web of relationships that we're born into, yeah. which I think is the point that Augustine was trying to say. Yeah. It's not like we are people who can just simply decide one day to stop sinning, yeah. um, because actually we're caught in a web that that is bigger than us, and we need someone outside ourselves to release us from that mm. web and to begin to to change our desires and to begin to kind of heal us from the damage that. Sin has done to mm. us. Well, we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Yeah. Yes, exactly. yeah. right, That's right, yeah. right. Yeah. And in regard to that question, our um, what's the name again of the guy who Libin Libin? Yeah, might like to have a read of the first few chapters of First Corinthians, where Paul says these guys 
They weren't much by worldly standards. Not, not many of you were wealthy, knowledgeable, and so on. Mm. Yet Paul writes to these guys and says, to those who are loved by God mm. and called to mm. be saints. Mm. It's almost a little commentary on, on his question, I think, mm. those first few chapters. Yeah, right. mm. yeah. yeah. And then there's a question of what, what, you, what you do with it, isn't it? I mean, in some ways, you know, we're dealt different hands in mm-hmm. life. And like you were saying, Jane, about, you know, the women in Burundi and, you know, us in the affluent West, you know, we are dealt these hands in life. And in a sense, the question then comes to us, what, what do we do with mm. those, those things? What, what talents do we develop? What um, kind of people do we become? Mm. And uh, in a sense, that, that isn't necessarily limited by uh, context and background and, and um, uh, an opportunity. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, I, I mean, uh, the great Christian command, uh, Jesus' command is to love your neighbor. But we all have neighbors that we can all love our neighbors, no matter how rich or poor we are yeah. or yeah. where we live. You know, that that doesn't change. It might be helpful, or, or, though, to remember that the things, I mean, if, if we have um, wealth and comfort and possessions, we tend to think of them as ours, don't we? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and possibly they're not. Yeah. Possibly yeah. they're not anything that we have earned or deserved mm. or. Yeah. Um, yeah. And certainly if you're a Christian, they're not. No. Because it seems to me what you do when you become a Christian is to, is in a sense, literally to say, right, these are not mine anymore. They are now God's and I am using them for his purposes, not mine. And in a very special sense, that's true. I, I mean, it's a really fascinating question. Yeah. And um, we could go on about it for a long time. But uh, just to. to um, uh, Moving to another one, which I think is related to it in the same way. This is um, a bit closer to home from Bristol. Very fine place. I come from Bristol, for those of you who don't know. Um, <laughs> and uh, from someone called Joel, Joel Many, who asks... Does, does Bristol have a football team? or a, a It has two football teams. Sport, sport ball? I can't remember. One particularly good one <laughs> called Bristol City. Apologies to all the Rovers fans out there, but um, you know who's... Don't worry, there are no fans of either anywhere, Graham, except in this room. (laughs) (laughs) I am the one. Now, there are a few of us around the place. But um, we won't go on about that because we're not allowed to talk about football on this. No, I forbid it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is a question not about football, but uh, from Joel Many, who lives in the wonderful town of Bristol. Um, And his question is this. After always thinking that God reveals himself to everyone... And hearing various accounts of Muslims and believers of other faiths and even agnostics and atheists having revelations of God, the conversion of Paulus, a prime example. I've been reading John 14 and I'm starting to think otherwise. Now, of course, I believe in the supremacy and sovereignty of God, that he can do what he likes. Uh, But there is a question in John 14 that um, is a little bit troubling. It's a question that Judas, not Judas Iscariot, uh, asks Jesus in in verse 22 of uh, John 14 that says, this, where Judas says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And um, Joel points out in his question that that seems to imply that Jesus is saying that he reveals himself to some and not others. And uh, he further goes on to, 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 or at least Joel goes on to say in his email, that um, Jesus, that, that question doesn't really get much of an answer. Um, at least not a very clear answer in the text. So not that we want to improve on Jesus in any way, but his question is, can we shed any light on this this question of whether it's true that God reveals himself more to some than to others? 
uh, or does he reveal himself equally to all? I think there is a very strongly implied answer in John 23, and it Mm. says, Jesus replied, those who love me Mm. will obey my teaching. So that there is a sense that um, the relationship with Jesus is is primary to being part of mm. um, mm. of what is happening in God's world, um, and that a God either can't or doesn't choose to impose a relationship mm. on all human beings, but mm. it's only out of that relationship, that freely chosen relationship yeah. that we um, choose to respond to, that we can become part of God's self-revelation. I mean, the, yeah, the question I would put to Judas, not Judas Iscariot, would be, well, what do you think God's love will look like? He says, why, how, is, why, why, um, why do you need to show yourself to us and not to the world? And you think, well, what else do you think it would mm. look like to show Jesus to the world? It looks like us obeying Jesus, mm. surely. Mm. Yeah, that, I think that, that hits the nail on the head there. And it, interestingly, in John's gospel, the word a world is used a lot. And, and if uh, if you do a little Bible search on world, you'll see, I mean, the famous passage, John 3.16, that it's God loved the world. And the next verse, God sends his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I think that means that, yes, there is a sense in which God reveals himself more to some than to others, but it's not simply privilege, but responsibility. It's God reveals himself to some in order that God's love is then shown to the world through those people. I mm-hmm. think that's what the mm-hmm. dynamic of, mm. of John's gospel and the yeah. world suggests mm. anyway. Well, I, I think, think that, it's, uh, yeah. that, that is what the, the doctrine of election is about. And I think it's a very interesting question, you know, the doctrine of election, which is a kind of classic thing that lots of Christian yeah. thinkers have thought about over the years. Is it primarily about salvation? so that only the elect are saved, or at least those who are part of the church are saved, those who are kind of visibly mm. uh, within the church. Um, or is actually election in some, to be understood, in a slightly different way, which is that there are those of us who are chosen to be a means of blessing to the rest of the world. And that's mm. clearly the sense you get in Genesis 12 with, with Abraham. Mm. Abraham is chosen out of all the families of the earth not just so that he is the one who is the direct recipient of God's love and, and and privilege related to the last question, but so that he can be a means of God blessing the whole world. And uh, I, I think I think maybe we need to think more of the doctrine of election in terms of that second way of understanding that it's primarily to do with hmm. you know being chosen for a purpose. Mm-hmm. In one sense, we can't tell why God has chosen one person over another to be part of the church or to be a Christian. Uh, it's very difficult to to tell that but we can tell the purpose for which a person has been chosen if you like to be a, a christian part of the church they're chosen to be a means of blessing to yeah. to others which is why this is a very poignant question that judas not iscariot asks in john because i think all of us would much rather god did all the work mm. god just mm. you know just demonstrate yourself make yeah. it clear to everybody that we were right all along mm. and um and and jesus is really saying sorry it's not going to be like that this yeah. is this is a task that we are called yeah. to be part of. And it does seem to be the way that God works in the world, isn't it? It's not usually to do things directly. It's no. to do things indirectly through people yeah, or even creation or whatever it might be, that God seems to carry on choosing people to be a means of blessing to the rest of his mm. 
his world. And he does that in Israel. He does it in, in, in Christ primarily. He does it in the church. Time and time again, God chooses a part of creation to be a means of blessing to the rest of creation. He's done that with humanity. Humanity is chosen in Genesis 1 and 2 to be the means of blessing for the rest of, a, uh, of the world. Now, that doesn't mean, I think, that... Um, it's, I, I think what it also ties into, I think, is it's some of the things that Jesus says about the the difficulty of telling who is in and who is out in terms of mm. salvation. Mm. You get those texts at the end of Matthew where, you know, the sheep and the goats and, you know, people that you expect to be in who aren't in and people you expect to be out who aren't, who, who aren't out. Um, and it's as if he's saying, well, actually, that question of who is and isn't saved, that's something you have to leave in the hands of God. You yeah. can't entirely tell that. It's very difficult to discern that. We might have an idea, but um, what you've got to get on with is being a means of blessing to the rest of the world rather than just sitting there thinking, oh, isn't it wonderful that I'm saved and everybody else isn't? And it may look like an inefficient system on God's part, but that's because we keep forgetting what God actually wants, which is people in relation to himself. Um, He doesn't actually just want to impose a set of solutions on the world because if that was what he wanted, he wouldn't have made this messy creation in the first place, this creation with this kind of freedom um, to go wrong. Um, What he wants is people who are capable of being in his image and actually being part of that relationship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit that the world is designed for and around. Um, And therefore any imposed um, solution is not that, is not what God once any any sort of what would look to us like a more efficient way of making sure everybody obeyed God is not actually what God is yeah. after. Yeah. Yeah. So is God not that interested in efficiency, do you think? I, I like <laughs> to think, being a deeply inefficient person yeah. myself, <laughs> that God likes chaos. It's no accident that we talk about ruthless efficiency. I mean, it's, efficiency yeah. is not always the most graceful mm. m- mode of of uh, of living, is it? I'm not sure that God likes chaos, does he? No, because chaos is one of the things he specifically. Yeah, Cre- um, creation is made out yeah, of chaos. Yeah. But I know what you mean. You know, he it look it might look chaotic to us, yeah. but it is actually. And he doesn't purposeful. necessarily go for the most efficient way of doing things, well, because the most efficient way of doing things may actually be quite a harmful get, way of doing and not things. Not get there yes. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I like the Gospel of John specifically. I'm glad to hear that. Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> company. I mean, John. In John, only in the Gospel of John does Jesus refer to his disciples as his friends, mm. and that happens a lot. That mm. Jesus, we're the friends of Jesus in the so John and John's community that were using these this gospel. They thought of themselves as as friends, you know, and and then. Jesus says, you know, greater love is no man than this. And he lays down his life for his friends. And, and he says, if you, mm. you've seen the Father, if you see what I'm doing, and then now that you've seen what I'm doing, you have to go and do likewise. And John, the Gospel of John has this great theme of, of uh, yeah, of being, a, being Christ-like is being friends with each other. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and it unashamedly focuses on the believing friends. Uh, it's the Gospel of John is really interesting that uh, God so loved the world we get in John three sixteen and yet how he loves the world as Chris pointed out is is through Christ and then through people who are friends with Christ mm. and it isn't this God doesn't click his fingers and change the world instantly yeah it happens through mm. through discipleship and friendship which is which is quite messy but it's also yeah. personal which which means as well I think that when we speak of election and we've spoken about the doctrine of election it's not just God isn't downloading information, privileged information about himself into right. some individual's head and not yeah. somebody else. Mm-hmm. Election 
is being called to participate in yeah. God's love for the world, I think, mm. is a way of seeing mm. it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and being an expression of that love for yeah. the world. Yeah. Fascinating. Very good. Thank you, everybody, for that one. It actually relates to the first question. It, it does, does very yeah. closely. That's yeah. right. And uh, we've got one more we're going to try and tackle before the end of um, God Paul 63, which is drawing near to a close. Um, and I don't know where this one is going to, we can find some connection between this question and the others. But this is uh, one from Chris, Chris Saburn in um, St. George's Church in Leeds. So we've gone from um, Kerala in India to Bristol to Leeds today. And uh, Chris's question, well, the thing I like that Chris says is that um, if we answer this question, he says he promises to bring us a pack of biscuits next time he's in London. So, Chris, we want to hold you to that. And find out oh, how absolutely. often you're in London. And chocolate, please. <laughs> yeah, with yeah, chocolate. Very high-quality biscuits they have to be here. Yeah. Um, they but his, be a high-quality answer in order to... <laughs> no, no, no. no, 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 no the quality of the answer has nothing to do with it. The promise is there. <laughs> exactly. Unconditional. Unconditional yeah. promise. Yeah. That's quite, yeah. Absolutely right. So, anyway, the question is, if the cross was plan A, why didn't Jesus go to the cross earlier in history? Surely this could have saved some of the death and desolation we see in the Old Testament. So it's a question, why why didn't God do this? You know, if the cross is the salvation of the world, why didn't he do it earlier? Um, it's interesting, it's a question that the, the early Christians got asked quite a lot. Uh, you know, if, if, okay, so if you're saying this is the key moment in history, why has it just happened now? Why didn't it happen centuries ago or at the beginning of time? And why did God wait so long? And because uh, it seemed like a rather random thing that this event had happened in the middle of history as, as it seemed to, to, to them so um any thoughts on that one well i mean presumably part of what at least part of what i want to say in response to that is that the um that the, the cross wouldn't have meant what it meant at any other point in history um that you needed the history of god's choice of abraham you needed the history of god's relationship with the people of israel you needed the history of um, the brutality of the Roman Empire with its other means of this other understanding of what power and and success was and all in order for the cross to mean what it meant I mean it's like any other historical event if you take it out of its connecting nexus of events it doesn't mean what it means mm. um, so that actually it's part of God's commitment to real history that that's the only point at which we could understand what the cross actually means, which is not to say that that, that it doesn't have effect um, th for all eternity, um, backwards and forwards, as it were, but that that's the only point in our temporal understanding of the sequence of history where it, we could understand what it meant. Does that yeah. make sense? I like that. It does, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was always told when being an undergraduate, if you don't know how to answer a question, the first thing you do is attack the question. So <laughs> I don't know how to answer the question, but I'm going to attack two assumptions that I just heard in that question that that, uh, that was read out to us. So one is, do, do, does this table agree that the cross is plan A? That's an interesting phrase. Is the cross actually plan A in the first place? And the other one was, he said, uh, if the cross had happened earlier, wouldn't that have s saved a lot of death and bloodshed? Well, frankly, there's been a lot of death and bloodshed yeah. anyway. I don't think the cross does solve. Mm. It hasn't solved death and bloodshed anyway. So whatever the cross has done mm. or is doing for us, it isn't solving mm. violence in the world. Mm. Mm. That's not what yeah. the cross is for. Yeah, very interesting questions. I mean, that question of is the cross plan A? Was the cross planned from the beginning of time? Would the cross have taken place 
if the world had not fallen. Without this original sin that we talked about with Augustine. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, the, the medievals who discussed everything yeah. did discuss that one, didn't they? And um, and I, I can't now remember who. Um, probably Aquinas. <laughs> probably almost certainly Aquinas or Duns Scotus or something like that. Um, and I think largely concluded that, no, the cross wouldn't have happened without mm. the fall. The incarnation mm. ah, might have That done. was my next question. Yeah. Would yep. the incarnation yep. have happened? Yeah. That the incarnation, yeah. you know, God's presence in his yeah. creation was always. Yeah. yeah, but incarnation wouldn't necessarily have meant crucifixion. Death. No, it's it's. Sin but in a fallen death. world, it would. It had to. Exactly. It had to sort of lead to to, to, to crucifixion. Now, I know so, that there are theologians who take a different view. Yes, of that, absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah. I so it's, it's plan A after the fall. Well, God is... If God is a God of relationships, then God is relating to to our free choices as well. So we've mm. freely chosen to, we have collectively freely chosen to make a sinful world. And so mm. that's what the cross is dealing with. And humans didn't, I mean, Graham, you said that uh, in this world, Jesus had to die, but that's not necessarily true. There was yeah. no, p- humans well, weren't forced to reject him and, and be offended by him. We chose to be offended and rejected. And rejected yeah. him. But I guess what I'm saying is that in a fallen world that because it's fallen rejects God and his ways, yeah. there is a certain inevitability that when yeah. God shows up on the scene, yeah. he will be rejected by us. Yeah. And you and see that yeah. you see yeah. that um dichotomy between the necessity of it and the hope that it won't be necessary in Jesus' teaching about it, don't you? And in Gethsemane. Yeah. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Picking up on the last point you made, Jane, as well, I thought was interesting, is to Yay. see the cross not just as something that's then good for people who come afterwards, but the cross is the revelation of God's saving love. It, it, you know, it's who God is. That's what the cross mm. shows us. Mm. And so this means that for all those who live before, you know, God didn't just become something new. He didn't change his mind and all of a sudden become very nice after the cross. That, that this shows the kind of God who created the world and who sustained people before the cross mm. as well. Mm. And I think that captures something of Paul's uh, argument in Romans chapter 5. It, it's really universal, Paul's language. You know, Adam, death came through Adam and sin came through Adam, but life comes through Christ. You know, that it's the absolute... Uh, universals pitted against one another mm. and I think that's that show you know we need to be bold to speak universally of the significance of the cross is what I want to say absolutely mm. and and that, that idea that the cross is a is a revelation of God not just the sort of mechanics by which we are yeah forgiven or, or, or saved is, is actually quite an important one and again, a lot of theologians over the years have have sort of pointed to that sort of revelatory aspect of the of the cross, the cross is a, a revelation of the, well, both the nature of God and the, the economy of God, to use the technical phrase. In other words, the way in which God works in a fallen world, He works through what is weak and inefficient and failing. Mm-hmm. Oh, well done, Rather Graham. Than, you managed to connect it. <laughs> there you go. There is a connection there. Rather than just through what is beautiful and wonderful yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and pretty, yeah. mm-hmm. as which is where we started from, that. The, the, the cross, which is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, uh, which is back to your point, Chris, about you know, God's choosing yeah. the weak in this world, not the rich and the famous. Yeah. Um, he, works pri- he works the salvation of the world through a cross, not through 
That's the liberty. I think we've um, reached the end of our journey so today. So we expect our biscuits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, we want the biscuits. Chocolate biscuits. Um, yeah, we're waiting for them any day now, next time you're down in London. But anyway, thank you very much to uh, all of you for joining in today. Thank you, Jane. Lovely to be here. And for Stephen. Thank you. And goodbye. And Chris as thank well. Thank you. So uh, that is Godpod 63. Godpod 64 will be along before too long. Um, hope you can wait for the next one. Until then, goodbye. That was Godpod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.